This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and this week I'm talking with Craig McIntyre. Craig has had a long tenure as the drummer for the Goo Goo Dolls, and has also performed with Josh Groban, Vertical Horizon, Adina Menzel, Dina Carter, Seal, and many others along the way. After building a very L.A.-centric career, Craig now lives in Portland, Oregon. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Our Patreon content now features our recent guest, Pat Petrillo, discussing the recording of his version of Black Cow for his new record. We've also got lots of other drummers on that Patreon series, including Ash Sohn and Will Kennedy, talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. Craig and I had a good long talk. I didn't really want to cut any of it out because we covered a lot of interesting bases. I wanted to include it all, so I just divided this into two halves. What you're about to hear is part one. We'll get to part two in a couple weeks. So here we go with part one of Craig McIntyre. Dolls uh, uh, life cycle right now. Do they have kind of a yearly or or seasonal rhythm that they uh, go out on? Yeah, I mean, I would say, I would say it's a it's a summer tour kind of band mm-hmm. overall. Kind of go, you know, the outdoor venues, right? Where you're just automatically going to get uh, a bigger crowd, yep. you know. Um, just because of the nature of it. So they, I think they focus on those amphitheaters, mm-hmm. uh, outdoor. So we, we hit it pretty hard in the summer. And the rest of the year, we'll either do a few one-offs, a few festivals, uh, or we'll record. Mm-hmm. Or, um, you know, every few years, do something overseas. Right. You know, right. a small Europe thing, or maybe, the you know, some oddball gig in the philippines or something like that or festival right but it's a it's a you know it's a it's an american band i mean it's like for sure it's like it's very what's cool about the gig is it's very domestic Uh um which i enjoy uh so you know where other gigs i've been on it's like you know you're you're gone for three months and you're australia and the and the asia and stuff like that which is amazing, but um, but for home life, it's pretty tough. Right. And, uh, you know, thank thank God for uh, 
for FaceTime. <laughs> that yeah, of, for sure. Yeah, FaceTime, saving, saving marriages. That <laughs> <laughs> should be their slogan. Um, but uh, yeah, so this is kind of the, the typical cycle of the band, but like, like anything in the States, you can wear it out pretty thin. Yeah. So they're a little careful. They might do like two summers on pretty aggressively and then they'll take a year off and try to fill it in with uh overseas stuff uh you know which is getting tougher and tougher even for the big acts now to uh yeah. to budget yeah for these kind of tours you really if you don't have a couple big festivals to tag like in europe or south america it's you're gonna lose money going there yeah uh, so and you know we we, we don't you know, we're not Pink Floyd. We don't carry this huge show, but we carry enough and we carry a lot of gear. We have a lot of guitars on stage and uh, very particular tunings and stuff like that. So we just can't like throw and go. Right. It's not that kind of band. Um, so, yeah, you know, we do have a, a hefty crew and stuff like that, and, and they have to be pretty consistent. So... Yeah, we. I wish it could just be the five of us fly over and go to Australia and like throw and go, but we can't do it. We 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 got some bells and whistles to take with us. Right, right. You know? But that's what makes it a better show, you know. Yeah, so, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, what like so like what was what was the last thing you did, and what is the next thing you're doing? I would say the last thing we did was well, last year we did 2022. We we officially did like a after two years of of laying back and just doing a record and a few festivals you know uh to audience with mask on uh we basically got like a real genuine summer tour no cancellations n nothing like that uh all of 22 and then um and then we did a small uh theater tour hmm. and um in the like you know early winter like you know november kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, so that, that that's a typical thing the band will do we'll do we'll do like the summer amphitheaters and then we'll size the the gig down and do theaters right and we particularly do that on an album cycle because we'll put out a new record but then we're playing to this summer festive kind of crowd so we don't want to bore them too much with new songs they don't know. Right. So what we'll do is we'll do that summer tour, try to play all the songs they know, throw in a couple little teasers from the new record or the new single or whatever. So people might know it or just the more upbeat songs that work. And then when we get to the theater tour where it's a, you know, a third of the crowd that we played to the summer, we get, there's a pretty hardcore audience um, that will, want us to do deeper cuts and newer songs yeah and, stuff like that. and all the hits will be played too at the same time but um so we we try to then we dig deeper into the record dig deeper into the old catalog yeah um and uh so that's how we kind of do it so we're still like in that album cycle new album summer tour you want to like make a big stink about it right but then but then the fall instead of playing three songs from the new record, we might play five, sometimes six mm -hmm. the theater tour. And it just seems like it's a more, you know, the audience isn't as, you know, it's not the big drunken festival crowd, you know, like yeah, the, the yeah. amphitheaters. So, you know, it's like, you don't want to bore them. With right. New songs. Yeah. That's yeah. a, sm that's a smart way to go about it. Cause like, you know, festival, festival crowds, um, even, even at small festivals I've found are sort of like, hard to um it's hard to keep them interested <laughs> absolutely absolutely yeah you know most of them uh, like you know they, they didn't they didn't necessarily make a date with you um and they they didn't right. necessarily make a date with any band they were just like let's go to the festival and fucking get drunk and <laughs> well yeah and, and 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 then some of these you know i never thought about it but some of these amphitheaters um it's kind of like sports where they have season ticket holders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So people are just, they're going to go. They might know three of our songs at the most. Right. You know, so you have to know that a lot of those people are there. Um, that, and, and we're lucky that we have three songs that most person, people on the street know. Yeah, sure. 
That's amazing, you know. And uh, so that that so you spread those out amongst the set for those fair weather fans. Yeah. Um, you know, you do one at the top, one in the middle, one, at the, you know, and they do have more hits, obviously. But there's like those key songs that are still played on 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 radio today. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you spread those out so you know they have plenty of time in between to get beer and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So. But, you know, and I, I, I like that challenge of engaging people that are half interested. You know, I like that, you know, I like that kind of let's let's punch it a little more, especially on these songs they don't know. And mm-hmm. let's let's make them believers, you know. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. How do you contribute to that from the drum chair? Like if you like you're OK, you're at a festival, right? And and you're mm-hmm. playing to a few thousand people who seem kind of like mildly interested. Um and the band is like, okay, we like we got to get these people. Let's rise to this challenge. Like, how do you how do you contribute to that from where you are? Yeah, that, I mean that's a good question because you know obviously there's only so much I can do, right? But I try to do it via the guys on stage mm-hmm. because I can feel, you know, say for example when we play in the South, when you play in the South, it's almost like, like a, like Japanese crowds where they, they, they cheer really loud right Mm -hmm. after the song. And then it dies down. Hmm. And there's, so there's not this cacophony of cheering and noise that kind of spill in that pregnant pause in between one song to the other. So there's this weird, like, it's almost like they're polite or something. And the Southern crowds are very much like that. And I think just cause it's hot and humid, yeah. and, you know, but they're just, and, 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 you know, some of these guys have been touring with, have been doing it for so long and, and on a big level. And they, and they know they've played these cities a million times, but they, it's still just like, once you get past the Mason Dixon line, it's just like, Whoa, what happened to the crowd? The size of the crowd is the same. Mm-hmm. They cheer loud when you come on stage, but when you finish a song, it's like rah, and then crickets. Yeah, <laughs> I have. And, and, I've noticed. I've is, noticed that at some shows. I live in Atlanta, so like, yeah, exactly. I, I, I know what you're talking about. And this just vibes the the front guys in the band, mm-hmm. um, and I understand because I could never do what they do. So that being said, I think I just kind of in my head i'm trying to punch it more uh make more eye contact with the band yeah um you know it's because i mean i'm probably playing the notes the same i did the night before i'm probably you know hitting as hard as i did or as dynamic as i do that doesn't really change but there's just something in your body and your your maybe your body language or your eye contact with the band it's like hey let's let keep this going you're doing a great job don't let the audience uh bum you out yeah yeah now and because that can really happen so i think the more the the guys in the back you know drummer and uh the other guys you know and then there's the front guys it's like the more we can kind of spit that out the tip of that pyramid but yeah i mean there's you know it's not like i can go like one two fuck you you know i mean it's like like there's really nothing verbally I can do yeah. or something, like that. but I think there's just this, this, uh, you know, you know, it's that, it, it's that thing when you do a show, you could, it could be the totally the same thing. You could be playing the same exact notes, the same exact parts, but there's something inside of you that just like, I'm really into it tonight. I'm really giving it. And all of a sudden you get like a compliment from one of the band members or an audience member says, wow, the drums are really happening tonight. And you're like, I really didn't on paper. I really didn't do anything different from the night before. Yeah. But it's just something inside you that, that radiates to, to something. It's a really cool thing. And it always seems to work if you just give it that hundred percent. Yeah. It's a, it's a great point about um, like body language and eye contact. Um, and I like I, I want to talk to you about like the the introvert versus extrovert thing, um, just in in a number of uh, scenarios. But like on stage, um, you know, I think it it helps to be 
extroverted from behind the drum kit. And you can obviously overdo that and make it very contrived and sort of manufactured. But short of that, if you're just present, like you said, if you kind of make eye contact with people and look like you're having a good time, um, mm. that contributes to just sort of the overall energy of, of, of what's coming off the stage. And that translates to the audience. Like you said, you're not playing anything different. It's just sort of coming off in, in a certain way that, that gets people's attention. And they're like, Oh, those guys are all having a good time together. Let's have yeah. a good time with them. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it is true. Or when somebody in the band is not having a good night or they're, they're being a little dopey on stage. It's like, I know that people listen with their eyes. Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a there's a great story of um, uh, the drummer Andy Newmark and and the bass player Willie Weeks when they it was when they were playing with uh, with Sly mm -hmm. back in the you know early to mid seventies and Sly was like not showing up to concerts yeah. and when he would show when he would show up. You know he was terrible and he yeah was these just, were these were the nod years <laughs> yeah yeah it's like you know just like staring at his keyboard and uh but andy newmark you know from what happened back then especially when they went over to europe um and sly was just in a bad way and andy just like overcompensated just kind of dug in a little more overplayed a little bit more than he would but just kind of became, he just played for the audience. He didn't play for Sly anymore. Mm -hmm. And at those shows, the shows, especially in England, where all the English rock stars and musicians went to that, those shows, because, wow, Sly is coming to Europe, mm -hmm. you know? So they're all there. So all of a sudden, Andy Newmark and Willie Weeks, if you look on all those British rock records um in the mid 70s they became the rhythm section hmm. you know bowie young americans uh the ron wood solo records uh gary wright i mean just all these all of a sudden they became this like 70s rhythm section and it was all because they went to go see sly sly was a disappointment but they're like that drummer's kick ass we wow need him. yeah yeah and, and so that's how it all kind of happened. Huh. You know? So I think if we, we always perform that way on stage, like no matter what's, no matter what the weak links are, you know, um, just always, I mean, I, you know, I have a great gig and everything's fine stuff like that, but I still have to play for myself. You know, I still have to like, I, I what's the next gig in five years? I don't know. What's, you know, right. Like, I still got to, you know, if I'm playing at my best, chances are it's going to be a pretty good show. Mm -hmm. Chances are, or, or if, you know, my guitar player is kicking ass, he's going to make me sound better, mm -hmm. you know? So I think it's, it's always going to be a good show. And I always know when I have a really good show or, or I just feel like I'm very present and I'm a hundred percent into it. I always get off stage. You no, know, even if the band even if there was bad notes and all that stuff, I always feel if the drums were kind of really on, everybody feels like, Hey, that was a pretty good show. Mm -hmm. That could have been just me, like not making mistakes. That could have been me like really being, uh, you know, I count off a lot of the songs or I start one of the songs with, with the computer and stuff like that. So I'm like, I was really on like everything, like really had a pace to it and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe my playing wasn't that much different than the night before, but all those very like that present stuff and that stuff we're talking about, like body language and eye contact. I mean, you always hear the stories about Jeff Beccaro in the studio. It's like, what was it about him? He always stared at people. Hmm. He always looked around the room. Yeah. Wasn't one of these guys who kept his head down and had his nose in the page. He was like very present with the other players. Yeah. And, to the point where it was awkward for people, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's what I hear. But he was like really staring at people and he was like, yeah, like we're in the studio, but this we are playing as a band right now. Yeah. So get with it, get with the aura of this whole thing. Yeah. 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 So 
that really does separate the men from the boys, you know, the, those kind of just, and it's, it's, it's nothing you can learn, you know, it's just, we just kind of know it from years of doing it. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And like being, you know, being present and, and bringing your whole self and your full attention to, uh, you know, an, an entire song, let alone an entire set, um, is, is hard. Like <laughs> it's really yeah. hard. Um, it really is it really not to is. not to check out, you know, especially yeah. if you're especially if you're doing a gig that you've been doing for a while. Yeah. Um. And so like yeah, you, I mean, you've been in this gig like 10 years, right? It's I'm. Um, it's like nine, nine plus. Yeah. So at the end of this year, it'll be 10 years. Yeah. yeah. So like I'm um, I'm a, just shy of four months into this uh, touring gig that I've been doing. Um, with uh, Ain't Too Proud, which is the the Broadway Temptations musical. I'm on the first national tour of this thing. Um, And, you know, I'm already past 100 shows in. um, And, like, already I'm I'm finding it a challenge to stay present, stay in it, you know, for the the whole show and not check out. Um, And some nights are better than others. But to to what do you owe uh, or to what do you attribute the the longevity of your tenure with this band? Um, uh, like like a personal thing or like the way I'm playing it or or just well, I I guess I I was I was thinking about like um along the way have you have you had other offers to do other things and you were like no i'm staying in this band this is where i belong yeah like, yeah yeah definitely um uh yeah i have had other offers and funny the 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 few other good size offers i've had um are gigs that i used to do mm-hmm. are are um you know tours and uh, artists that i used to tour with which was kind of a a good feeling it was a win-win because you know when you leave another gig or they don't call you back for another gig or something like that and then years go on and you're like you don't you don't ever think they're going to call you back for whatever reason yes yeah. as, as and the fact that i was already with this gig and then i get called back for an artist i worked with 10 years ago or an artist i worked with five years ago and uh or you know didn't know what i was doing or didn't know how how uh committed i was to my gig that was a really great feeling you mm-hmm. know but i you know i had been there done that those kind of gigs right and um and i knew it wasn't going to be either of those callbacks that i got were not going to be a consistent thing mm-hmm. and and I, when i got those calls i was still within the first few years of this gig so it was still new and exciting and wanted to see how far I could go with it. So, you know, had I had three months off and I could have gone back and worked with that artist, that would have been amazing, you know? Yeah. Um, but uh, it, it, it would have conflicted easily and they were cool. And that was like, it's cool that, you know, those artists call you and then they're like, okay, well, at least I called you and you were like busy doing something. So I had, so I know that I was calling back somebody that, has moved on in their career and they've gone on to other things. And so I think it's, you know, it's just, it's a great situation, you know, yeah. it's not like well, I've been working with you in 10 years. I've been waiting for you to call me. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, so, you know, it, that looks good. And then maybe in 10 years from now, I'll, I'll do their Vegas tour, you know, right. <laughs> their Vegas year. I mean, I don't know. I just, but that, you know, that, that goes on another subject of like when you exit gigs, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it's how about it's how you exit whether if you quit you get fired they just don't call you back after a tour because they want a change yep it's all about that exit because it maybe the artist is like oh, i'll never work with that artist again i hear people say that all the time hmm. what about the guys in the band what about their manager mm-hmm. you know right that, that has four other things on their roster you know, what about the booking? What about all these people you meet? What about their merch guy? What about, I mean, everybody, Yeah. this business is connected to something. So I have had a very 
you know, with no agenda attached at all, but a very good diplomatic way uh, and or just to how I've navigated through stuff and not taking things so personal. I mean, you know, when I was younger, oh, yeah, I mean, I took everything personal. Yeah. You know, everything was like, you know, it was all about, you know, that I was so protective of that stuff. But now it's like, you know, it's like you could go see Eric Clapton and he's got Gad one year and then he's got Jordan one year and then he's got Ferroni one year and then he's got Sonny Emery. Yeah. I think they were all pretty good. Yeah. I think they could all do the gig. Yeah. <laughs> but either Clapton said, I want a different, a different, I want a different flavor this, this year. Right. Or this guy's busy. So how do they, do they say like, I got fired from this or, or I didn't get called back or where's the loyalty. I think you get to a, a certain age in your career where you're just, you don't get so wound up about all that stuff. And I've really learned from a lot of LA musicians, how they, they just kind of, you know, don't take, don't take it so personally that, you know, it sucks if you get like, to me, getting fired is being in your hotel room and a tour manager comes and gives you, you know, plane tickets. Right. And you're halfway through this tour, this project you're doing, that sucks. That's getting fired. Right. That, that you, you did something really twisted or something didn't work out. Has that happened uh, to you? No. Good. No. Okay. No. But you hear the stories and it's like, to me, that's kind of like, woo. But if you just end a tour and then they want to like make a change. Right. Awesome. That's great. Yeah. You know, like that, that's to me, that's just, that's just life. That's just like changing the way we change everything, you know? Yeah. And like so you said, like I don't that kind of stuff personal. Sure. And, and if, I mean, it's hard not to take it personally, but, but when you think about it, like you said, there are a number of reasons that an artist or a manager or somebody could want to make a change. It's not that you did a bad job necessarily. It's not that you're a bad person. Uh, it might be that they just like an old friend of theirs is now available and they want to get them in there or they're they're going a different direction or a different flavor with the music and they have somebody in mind that they really, you know, it's hard not to take it as a slight or a knock against you, but it usually right. isn't. It usually isn't. It's usually and that's what I mean. You kind of cover your bases. You kind of do the best you can because you know all that other stuff is out of your control mm -hmm. you know so i mean you know i'm sure you've been the same way i've, I've spent my life with people worrying about getting fired <laughs> you know like like um, uh you know myself included you know worrying about getting fired uh complaining about the gig yep you know i mean it's just you know what's the old uh, you know the joke is you know how do you get a musician to complain give them a gig yep how do you get how do you get a musician to quit? Give him a good gig. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's I just, hadn't heard that second part. That's great. <laughs> it's it's just the it's just the age old thing, you know, that and um and it just takes a lot of years of doing this. And uh and of course, yeah, I mean there's just a side of you that's always like, What did I do wrong? And 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 you know, this sucks and stuff like that. But I think if you go into things kind of knowing that you know they can be temporary or they're out of your control and as long as you showed up you did your part you know you can't force your whatever chemistry you think is going to be perfect with them yeah you know that that will happen or it won't happen or it'll kind of happen and you'll have 80 percent chemistry but then they are missing that 20 percent, and it like you said it could be their buddy, they want to get back into the fold or, I mean, I've seen it happen so many times. I mean, not so much to me. I've been very lucky, but, um, but I see it happen to friends of mine all the time. And I love my friends that just let it roll off their back. You know, I, yeah. <laughs> I got one friend who's a bass player friend who's, he says the funniest thing. He just, he know he knows how to kind of give people an insult without like in a, in a like in a funny way. Yeah. He'll just, you know, he'll get let go from a gig and he'll be like, Oh, I've been fired from much bigger gigs than this. 
you know, he knows how to get his little jab in there. Right. <laughs> Even when he's the one getting fired. Man, yeah. that's great. That's great. So, so I have lots of stuff to use. I have lots, but I, luckily that stuff hasn't happened to me, but I have, I have lots of little, uh, you know, techniques of, uh, and, and wise ass things to say. Right. <laughs> and, you know, as whenever, whenever you're, um, you know, on the, on the losing end of that equation, um, you know, just, just as often you're going to be on the winning end, like just as often you're going to be the guy who is friends with the person and they want to bring you in to replace the old guy. And it's not that the old guy did a bad job, but now they want you. So like, I, you know, I, I try to remember when I'm in that situation, I try to remember, like, I'm I'm on the shit end of it now, but I've been mm-hmm. on the other end of it before. I will be on the other end of it again. Um, mm-hmm. And like you said, it's all connected. I love what you said about, you know, even even if you might have a problem with, you know, an artist or a manager or the music itself or, you know, like one aspect of the gig, look around at how many other people are on this who you might cross paths with again and you know, if you comport yourself in a positive professional way, even if there's one part of it that you really fucking hate, <laughs> you know, absolutely, you're going to do right by yourself with the rest of these people, you know, sometimes dozens yes. of people. Everything has a redeeming quality. For sure. another and all and the people we know and then a maybe a bigger bubble outside of that are the minority in this business you know like we're working mm-hmm. we have kids and no matter what the gig is when i first moved when i had moved to la in 2001 and i moved to silver lake i moved to the hip you know the hip you know hipster right crowd right, right away and it was all about what kind of gig you had mm-hmm you know, so it was about, you know, so if you were doing a gig that was a little like not the cool gig, you know, you would kind of shy away about it at your coffee hangs with your friends, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know? And uh, which I found very silly. But um, and then, you know, the industry starts shitting the bed a little more and then like 10 years go by. And, you know, those same musicians come up to you and go. It's not about what kind of gig you have. They go, man, you got a gig, right? <laughs> and it's like, well, you were the you were the hipster that was so cool. You know, you thought you had your shit together, and you were only doing the cool music and stuff like that. And I admire people going dig, you know, digging into their integrity like that. I have nothing right, wrong with it, right? But like, sometimes, man, it's just cool to like be working, dude. And, it's always cool to be working, almost it always. Really, it really is. And <laughs> now, now I know, like I said, now those same people, you know, that were in a very Three Musketeers attitude, my band's the shit, and we're the coolest thing, and we're we're getting this record deal, and we're showcasing Hotel Cafe. It's like, cool, man. You know, it's like I've been in bands my whole life. I know how up and down it is, and like, fucking go for it. It's yeah. awesome, you know. But you know. If you get a chance to do some gig that's like maybe not the kind of music that's in your fucking record collection, do it yeah. because it's going to lead to other things. Yeah. Yeah. And all those roads are going to come back to something that's a little more your flavor. And yeah. you're going to be a better musician for it. You know, I, when I moved to LA, I couldn't read. I, you know, I never took orchestra in high school or anything like that and then i wound up on gigs that were like what the hell am i doing here Mm -hmm. you know playing with orchestras and doing latin gigs and stuff like that well that made that was a crash course that just made me a better all-around musician and now i go back into you know when i do rock stuff which is what i've always grown up doing and guitar based music i got all these other 
you know, facilities in me that that'll make even that music better. Right. Or, you know, or like now I'm in this very guitar band, but then they're interested in some modern stuff. And like, you know, I, I know more about, I know about drum machine kind of stuff and, and like stuff like that, that they don't know. Cause they didn't grow up that way. So, mm-hmm. but I got all those lessons from just doing other gigs and now I can read music and I can, or if they want to bring in like a little string quartet or something like that, it's like, you know, I'm not so like out of the loop, you know, like I, I kind of, I'm just a better well-rounded musician. Right. You know, so even when I'm going back to my, you know, if I do something as my garage band roots or something like that, I can go back to that and make that even a bigger garage. I can make it a better <laughs> better situations. Yeah. So, we we talk all the time about um, you know, your your younger years, the first stage of your career is the time to just say yes to everything, right? Just do it all. Get the experience. Um absolutely. and then, absolutely. you know, as you get older, as you get more experienced, um what I'm finding at least is that like you said, you can you can bring all of that experience and all that versatility to <laughs> to bear on a on a more specific thing that you really give a shit about. Right. Like you're you're kind of like grabbing all these tools <coughs> along the way. And then, you know, you reach an age where you can apply all these tools to, and like not, you, you're not so all over the map and all over the road stylistically with your playing and the gigs that you do. But you have this big toolbox, like you said, this big garage um, that you yeah. can bring to bear um, on the music you care about. Um I, it's interesting what you said about like when you got to LA and you know the 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 cachet was sort of the the hipness of the gig you had um and how that how that changed over the years I got to LA in 2010 and um the my my most frequent gig while I was there for the 6 years that I was there was uh I guess it was 5 years I played at Disneyland and I like you know like you were saying i was i was not always so upfront about that cuz i thought it was maybe kind of a lame gig in some people's eyes um but almost always like if if i told somebody i played at disneyland they'd be like oh man good for you that's a great gig <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know absolutely um and so i'm i'm curious about your perception of la because um you know we we were talking about how it's like it's always good to be working um, but I feel like some players in LA and it's, it's not necessarily their fault. It's just the nature of LA. Like they've gone to the other extreme where it doesn't seem to me like they're being very intentional about, um, the gigs they choose to do. And whereas in your day, the cachet was the hypnosis factor. Now it seems like the cachet is the platform. Right. Like it doesn't matter like who the personalities are or what the music is. It's like, is this a thing? <laughs> and it could be an old thing or a new thing, but it's like it's it's sort of name recognition. It's just having that platform of like, yes, I play with a thing that you've heard of. So do you think right, that people right. do you think that people have gone too far in that direction? Yeah, that that that's really interesting. Um, well, I think the wrong people have maybe gone too much, and I think this is what you're getting to. I think some of the wrong people have gone to the wrong gigs. Mm. You know, like like just because they can or they figure, uh, oh, this is a rock gig. This is easy. I can go to this, and they, you know, they they. I don't know. There's a but they really just want to be playing freaky jazz, right? But but then they're so invested in trying to get the Madonna gig or something like that. Like I don't really recognize those kind of musicians. Like that doesn't great if you can do everything like that and you're that versatile. I I I I I love versatility. It's great. But but yeah, as like an agenda or like a motive or, or kind of um, you know. I just want to get the gig that pays the most or, or uh, yeah, it, it does get mixed up with stature. Yeah. Uh, how much you're working. Um, you know, some guys just want to do everything. They just want to, you know, they want to be doing every gig and they don't really care if it's not their style of music. Mm-hmm. They're just, they're just, 
there's this kind of some guys go about it in a kind of an arrogant way you know i just i just want to do everything and and conquer everything and that's kind of another level of being a mercenary yeah 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 um or doing things on a survival state you know i i think a lot of situations i've fallen into have been almost from from survival or curiosity Mm -hmm. not like yeah i want to be the 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 number one guy and i want to do this gig and this gig and this gig and just be like i want my phone ringing off the hook like yeah we all want to be busy but um yeah i think some people in la have lost the plot Mm. and and like you said i don't think it's their fault always because it's so expensive to live there yeah um and people are just gonna take the biggest thing they can get um, and sometimes it'll be a happy accident. I've had many happy accidents that were good gigs and they paid well and I didn't feel like I belong there. Right. But that gig, what that gig did for me and maybe what these guys don't do. And mm-hmm. I see it in some of these players, but though that gig that was not in my wheelhouse, I went back to working as hard as I did when I was 15, just learning how to freaking play. Yeah. In general. Yeah. Yeah. And I took the I took that ten hour shedding ten thousand hours whatever you want to call it I took those that mentality to really get you know get myself into that kind of music and not take it for granted and 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 then that's why those gigs ended up being successful because I just came in and I like really dug in I see some guys come in they just got their nose in the book. You know, it's like a rock gig, but they're still playing their dumbass seven string bass or something like that. <laughs> you know, it's like they're not they don't really understand, you know, the aesthetic and and they're not I know they're not going home and listening to that music or they're not absorbing what that artist was into. Mm-hmm. They're just kind of like, yeah, this is what I do. And, I, and I'm I'm doing it over here once in a while that can work. And there can be an empathetic musician that likes his seven string bass but he can kick ass in a black crows kind of band right doesn't happen much right but I'm not saying it's impossible you know um but there's some guys that just they just kind of don't really dig into the 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 nature of that gig enough yeah and, and i want to i want to point out like i i think there are there are good examples of um like jason sutter to me is a guy who um you know, he plays a lot of big gigs. It's all over the road stylistically, but I th- I think he's earnestly invested in each one of them. He's not doing them cynically. Like he's digging into whatever that thing is, and 100%. and say like, let me you know, let me first of all kick this gig's ass. Second of all, learn whatever I can from it, um, and just you know, uh, make it a, a good experience for everyone. But I think there, there are other examples of, and like you said, LA does it to you. LA makes you feel like it, you know, a gig is a gig. Um, and, uh, it's like, it's so saturated. It's so, uh, competitive, um, that I think you, you, it's easy to convince yourself that the gig you're doing is where you belong. <laughs> <laughs> especially yeah. if you're especially if you share my disposition of just sort of like insecure and um uh you know just like give me a foothold just let let me <laughs> you yeah know. yeah 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 i mean you know I, I definitely when i moved to la i mean i joined a couple indie bands that were kind of had some financial backing behind it mm-hmm. but they didn't go anywhere but they were awesome. And musically it was right up my alley, but you know, I was just kind of, it wasn't that big gig and and we would play to nobody, but there would be some financial backing. So it kind of felt like, well, this seems more successful or more successful than a band I had back in Boston Mm -hmm. because I'm getting paid to rehearse, (laughs) (laughs) but it's like either people show up or they don't, you know, you can't buy a career. Right. So I I was, and then in LA is the home of vanity projects sure, or the lifeblood of our industry, I call it. And uh, (laughs) so, you know, and then I got, you know, because of a couple degrees of separation, I get a, a, a chance to audition for Josh Groban, who was, 
nobody even heard of him back then. It was at the beginning of his career. Right. And it was about as left field for me as you could go. It might as well have been somebody coming up to me and saying, here's some Chinese algebra. Can you, <laughs> can you uh, solve this tomorrow and have your paper in by, you know, it was just so different for me, but it was the hardest and greatest lesson I ever learned uh, getting on that gig because I learned it's just about being musical and being a, a good player and having good time and good in, you know, good intuition. Yeah. Uh, I used to be so like, I used to categorize and pigeonhole stuff so much that mm -hmm. it's like, well, I'm not that guy. I'm not the jazz guy. You're the jazz guy. And I play this kind of rock and you play metal and, and then I just realized, like, you know, like sometimes people just put stuff in a stew mm -hmm. and uh, they mix different kinds of musicians in there and it, and it kind of works. And I, it's really a gig like that really opened my mind, like to where it's like, man, they just want a drummer where it feels good. Yeah. I don't need to be an expert in that music. I don't need to... Um, you know, be so emotionally invested in it. Right. Um, but um, so that, you know, and I think, I don't know what point we're at, but yeah, I think, I think that's, you know, I need, I needed a big gig. Yeah. I needed a big gig. And that, I think that was the point, but, and, and that, and that's what, that's what happened. But like I said, that, that good lesson was that, okay, like I can do this. Mm-hmm. And like I said, going back to like when I was 15, I put in that kind of work to get that kind of gig. Yeah. So, and there was, there was other guys auditioned for the gig who were probably better at me, probably had done kind of gigs like that before, but they took it for granted. They could read better than me, but I did the research. I dug in and I just probably needed a gig more than them, but <laughs> I just like, I really, really dug into it because I, I was at the auditions at SIR and there was, I mean, these guys were like guys I'd read about in Modern Drummer and stuff. Yeah. So I'm like, oh, these guys are going to kick my ass. But I really went the extra mile, you know, and I knew a couple of the band members and I asked questions. This is before YouTube. So I did as much research as I could to get into that, that situation. And it paid off. Yeah. Because... I had listened to the music so much and, and I knew that just reading the chart wasn't enough. Mm -hmm. I knew I, there was these dynamics in the music and, and I had to, and I had to ask the other musicians, what the, what the other drummer do. There's no footage of the other drummer. How did, how was this, you know, how should I approach it? That little like insight that I did, I went in there and I, and I like owned it where I was listening to the other guys outside of the door they were just reading the music mm -hmm. and they were playing really timid and they were kind of almost falling behind as good as drummers as they were. Yeah. But they were just like, whatever, this is just another, this, this is just another, that. Yeah. I mean, for you, me, you mentioned like, for they me, were... it was so new. It was right. such a, it was such a new thing. And I wasn't this like LA guy that had done a bunch of like different kind of gigs. I was still new. And so I'm like, I'm going into this like hundred percent, you know, and, and, like I said, so that that paid off. It wasn't because I was a better drummer, right? And and you mentioned that some of these guys were like you know big names that you'd read about in Modern Drummer, and I'm wondering if if maybe um, those guys brought some cynicism into that audition and like literally didn't care whether or not they got that gig, um, and like if they had gotten it, might have not told anyone about it because it's Josh Groban and it's a certain kind of thing and they don't mm -hmm. want to, you know, um, not maybe not hip enough in their minds. Um, but that's a great example of a gig or an artist where there's like, you know, so, so we, we've talked about what the gig is, right? Like, what is that music? Um, but then beyond that, uh, the sort of the make or break questions for me are, okay, is it a good version of whatever it is, right? Like, are people performing at a high level? Never mind the genre, never mind the vibe, whatever. Like, right, right. are people showing up to fucking do this? And yeah. then, like, are, are they good people? Are they good to work with? Are they good to play with? All that stuff, all that stuff. So, so yeah. I mean, that, that matters as much, if not more, than 
the category of the gig. And maybe that explains why, you know, a lot of these L.A. guys um, and gals are are doing all these different kinds of gigs that, you know, from from my cynical perspective, it's like, I don't think you're being intentional enough about your career path here. But I, you know, just as often, I think it might be the case where they're like, yeah, this is a certain thing, but it's a good version of this thing. And these are great people. And I'm here. I think, I think that's a really healthy attitude. Um, and I was just talking to somebody about that the other day, just like somebody said from this point on, whatever, I like a lot of different kind of music. And they said, I just want to play, you know, with good players, good people, Yeah. you know, in that genre. Yeah. And, and I'm like, yeah, that's not a lot to ask for, but it's, it's hard to find. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and yeah. it really is. And and um, yeah, I I I I totally feel that way. That Josh Groban gig was very much like what I always say about that gig is because his music was so bizarre. You know, he's singing in these different languages. He's a kid that went to theater, but then he had an opera coach, right? And then, but he liked modern music, and then like. And there's, there was odd time signatures. There was it was all over the place. I don't even know how to describe his music. Right. And then as the years have passed, because I did it for many many years, I, I look at it. I look back on it as a good thing. Mm-hmm. Like he wasn't, he wasn't like Michael Bublé, or he wasn't. You couldn't put him in the box. He was kind of all over the place, mm-hmm. and he was kind of inventing this kind of genre. And so in that way, it was cool. Even though I still, it's like, what was the message? What was the like the the music never sat on a groove for four bars, and that was always that always stuck in my craw. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just like, where is this going? Like it was it was kind of almost Broadwayish or something like that. Sure, and yeah. And and I just kind of like, so I could never really understand um, wh- where we're going with it because it just didn't relax for a second. It was very intense. There was a lot of shit going on. And the same way, that was a huge challenge for me, and it was like you know, open my whole world to stuff. But um, uh, the point I was getting is the, the, the musicians on the gig were guys that I would never, they would never be on a Goo Goo Dolls gig. They would never be on this gig. Like, you know, like the keyboard player, Mark Stevens, you know, it played with Chalk, I played with Boney James, played with all these kind of people. Like, and Bikiti Kamala was in the band for a while with, you know, played with Paul Simon. And mm-hmm. like these guys would never end up in my love of the Stones and the Beatles kind of bands that I have always done or my right. kind of music. You know, so what an opportunity. I'm not going to go on their gigs. I'm not going to play like fusion or jazz or stuff like that. And I like that stuff, but I'm not a participant. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he would get these kind of like, world musicians and heavy jazz guys and then you would get a guy like me that's a rock guy and we would all or then one guy was maybe had done more broadway stuff and we're all on the same gig and we're all in a band and we're all on the bus together and we're just turning each other on to so many cool check this out you know somebody's playing this and then i'm playing them some zeppelin bootleg and they're like what the fuck you know so (laughs) like everybody's just like you know I love that. Mm-hmm. That was great. And then there was a very uh, sympathetic, you know, empathetic way that we played together. And I was like, that's really special. And that's a great jumbo. That's a great chemistry that on paper, it almost shouldn't have worked. Right. Because a lot of this came from different walks of life. But because Josh's music was kind of its own thing and it was kind of unique that nobody was going to like, blow bebop chops over here and i was not going to play too much you know funky stuff over here or rock stuff over here right the music kind of made us all use our best judgment and intuition and play tastefully together yeah but like i said if if they were on one of my gigs they wouldn't be rock enough or if i was on one of their gigs i wouldn't be jazzy enough or something right right this gig was like this great hybrid this great catalyst to bring all these different walks of life and talent together and just like we got to push this ahead and make this the best Josh Groban music whatever you want to call it right and, and i was, think 
it's a huge lesson. It's a credit to Josh um, and and whoever the MD was, if there was an MD, um, to just like you know put put all of you together and not micromanage it too much. It sounds like that's what happened. It was just like let's let's put this you know put these musicians together and see what kind of music they make. Yep. Yeah. When I when I did the audition, um, uh, I had heard through the bass player who I knew that they had just done a PBS special with J.R. Robinson. Wow. And, and I said, well, what was that like? (laughs) And, uh, and I said, because I don't understand this guy's music and there's kind of this weird drum machines are kind of buried underneath orchestration, especially on his first record. So I didn't know how to approach it from a a drum set point of view. Mm -hmm. I didn't know if I was going to just get some, get an SPD pad and make all these loops and play really gentle. And uh, I didn't know what to do. And my buddy was like, yeah, JR just kind of like crushed time over everything. Hmm. He just, he, he ran the loops and then he just played cashmere over everything. (laughs) Okay. Like it sounds great. So, So I go into the audition knowing that. Yeah. And, and I said to myself, okay, the last drummer, that Josh has played with was J.R. Robinson. And I'm not the pimple on the guy's butt, but I know that kind of playing. So I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go in and, you know, J.R. is known to be pretty damn loud, you know? Yeah. Like, I'm going to go in and not not be loud or, or not like, you know, like have my arm up at the ceiling, but just give it like some punch. Yeah. And don't be so delicate with the the orchestra and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I went in there and I just like did what I think maybe JR kind of his approach was, um, he's just got a big kit and he's a big dude. And I just figured, okay, I'm going to go and, you know, go in there with guns a blazing. So, so after the song, after I do an audition, Josh goes, man, you're, you're a rock drummer. (laughs) And and I thought that was my, I'm, I'm done. Right. Right. You know, and then he goes, yeah, man, that's what I need. Man, you know? that's great. And then he goes, you know, a 20-piece orchestra is as loud as a Marshall stack. Yeah. And I'm like, you're you're a pretty smart dude, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I get it. He goes, well, he goes, we're going to be playing some big rooms, and I need a big wide two and four. And that's what somebody like JR is famous for. Yeah. You know, and, uh, that big grandiose ballad kind of thing. And I said, great, I will take that you know i will just take that approach yeah yeah. you know um that's it's such an interesting point because like when when people think about an orchestra or playing with an orchestra i think usually they they think about being really sensitive being really dynamic um you know being really flexible with time and all this shit but but for that gig at least the opposite is what was called for just like you know, like you said, big, wide, two and four, something that's going to be overarching and stand up to the orchestra, not not be sensitive with it and sort of treat it with kid gloves. Like that was that was the essence of that gig. And and it <laughs> and it's funny because it backfired at me um, in, in good ways. But later on, but it was very much I played with the piano player. We played to a click we were like this five piece pop band in front. Mm -hmm. The orchestra was behind us and they were kind of just icing on the cake. Mm -hmm. So they, they could be a little floaty and they could do this, but it wasn't like a conductor up front conducting me. And then the orchestra I had, I was, I, I had a click set and I was just locked in with piano and guitar and bass and the orchestra, I, I didn't even have the orchestra in my ears most of the time hmm. because we, we, because the orchestra in New York was a lot better than the one in Boise, you know? So we, <laughs> we, would, we would pick up different ones in every city. Yeah. So I didn't want this inconsistency of that. So they were really just, and then some of it was in the, uh, some of it was on the Pro Tools. You know, it was a lot of stuff going on. So that, I didn't really, I always approached that gig. Like it was just, it was just us, you know, it was just this, this core band, the guys that, you know, I was always tight with on the bus and still some of my best friends today, but that, but then I got known to be the guy (laughs) that can play with orchestras. Right. Right. So I start getting calls for gigs that were real, like you said, real 
orchestra gigs where you're conducted. Yeah. And and you're just reading your ass off. And I'm like, no, that's <laughs> but I still and then like I ended up uh doing um playing with Adina Menzel. Uh-huh. And I did her DVD, but it was like conducted by Marvin Hamlish. Jesus. I was right up front with him. It was Broadway charts. It was heavy fucking reading. Yeah. He was so out of my wheelhouse. But I was, because they assumed I played with Groban, that I was just like this yo cat that could just, you know, just do it. Luckily, I had a good week to just look at, look at these charts they were like streisand charts from the 70s they were just like you know dun 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 you know yeah luckily i was able to listen and then look at the chart and put my chicken scratch on it but if i couldn't walk into a gig like that and just sight read it like no way yeah but the good thing is adina didn't want that the, they had been using orchestras in all the cities they went to and the orchestra usually has their local their drum set guy in mm -hmm. the orchestra and she knew that that guy was always the 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 grooves always felt a little on top because he's always looking three three bars ahead yeah like most readers do you know so she's like i need somebody to kind of that's more pop that, that can kind of sit back because the vocals are relaxed but the orchestra is like they're just waiting to get to the finish line so she knew that about me but at the same time, the pressure was huge. An 88 piece orchestra, Marvin Hamlish. Yeah. Um, something I could brag to my parents about. And, you know, <laughs> right. so, somebody you know, they've that, heard of. <laughs> yeah, somebody they've heard of. Exactly. There you go, Craig McIntyre. Again, that's part one of our talk. Part two will be coming at you in a couple weeks. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with Kyle May, Nashville based home studio guru and content creator. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.